everybody. Welcome to another episode of Bluebird and Glubroid Radio. Uh, I'm Zach Loafman, here as always, and with me, of course, is Mr. Matt Most. How you doing? I'm doing great. How are you doing, Zach? I am doing well. I am very much looking forward to tonight's conversation. Our guest tonight is John Lassiter, and we're going to be talking about montane milk snakes and keeping colubrids, a little bit of field herping. It's going to be a good combo. But uh, before we get to that, of course, we have our housekeeping, what's happened since the last time we recorded. And as always, a bit of a blur, but a, a little bit tamer than and than the previous two weeks before recording with Jennifer. Um, I don't really have much to report. Uh, the babies, for the most part, have hatched, uh, with the exception of, as always, about 45 false water cobra eggs are still in the incubators uh, waiting to go. Um, new additions for me, uh, Travis Wyman graciously sent me a pair of a badass group of snakes, Oligodon, Purpurescence, um, Kukri snakes, and he hatched out some of those. So these are captive born. A lot of times they come in as imports and they're uh, a little bit psychotic for lack of a better word. These guys are nice and chill. I haven't fed them yet. Uh, they're still kind of getting in, but, but those are my new additions. But otherwise right now I'm just kind of doing the pre-brumation feeding regime of trying to build up a little bit of fat and some of the females that drop that I want to go again, and then just getting everybody ready for that because it won't be long before we're putting things down for the winter. So that's me, Matt. What's up with you? Well, I'm pretty much kind of in the same boat. I mean, I think I have a total of 10 or 12 clutches still left to hatch. Um, a lot of those are the later species in the year, the Vietnamese mandarins. Uh, still waiting on four more clutches of file snakes to hatch out. Um, some capes, some cross-eye. I actually have some capes actually midway out of the egg today, so that's pretty cool. Um, but other than that, I mean, really it's kind of winding down in terms of the collection itself. We're starting to see some seasonal change. Hopefully it's not going to be as erratic as last year's <laughs> uh, temperature change because I kind of follow the barometric pressure here in the Midwest and kind of cycle my animals accordingly and start to cool things down respectively as a result of that. Um, last year, obviously the weather went up and down and I'm sure John will talk about this even too within Texas in terms of kind of cycling his animals. Um, but it's just one of those things where hopefully things start to moderate a little bit easier, especially with this climate change that we're all going through. Um, but even in terms of availability of animals, I mean, a lot of things have moved a lot faster than in years past just because of the higher demand in colubrids over the years. Mm -hmm. um, so, and, and that being said, I mean, I think we're ready to get into this conversation. What do you think? Yeah, I agree 100%. I, I do want to say one thing, though, before we jump into that, about the demand for colubrids, because this is nice. So my local show is the Pittsburgh Monthly Show. And it was today, and I normally go to the show just for feeders and things like that. And I took my son. We went up there this morning, actually. And I was pleasantly surprised because as I walked and looked at tables, what is normally nothing but a never-ending sea of crested geckos and ball pythons, there were colubrids on tables. And I can't tell you how long it's been since there was some diversity on those tables. And it wasn't just... Corns and kings, not that there's anything wrong with that because they're wonderful, but I actually picked up a Pinellas Florida King today, 
which is this really cool integrated phenotype that I've been looking for forever. And the fact that I was able to get a sub-adult at the Pittsburgh show kind of blew my mind. Um, but at the same time, there were black neck garter snakes. Like, you never see that kind of unique thing anymore when you go to a show. So it was a, it was a pleasant feeling to walk out the door thinking, wow, there was like diversity there. And I think that definitely speaks to the point you just made where a lot of people are talking about colubrids coming back. And, and if, if it's impacting my show in Pittsburgh, it's definitely going to be impacting people in other places. So that's, that's nothing but a good thing. So on that token, yeah, Matt, we are definitely going to jump into this. So our guest tonight is John Lassiter of Coastal Bend Captive Breeding. John has been in the herpetoculture game for a while, which is great. We love having people on the podcast that have a bit of history. Uh, we were talking before we started recording about going on the forums with kingsnake.com in the 90s. And if you're on those forums, you're definitely one of the originals, if you know what I'm saying. Oh, people listening to this thing. What the hell is that? They're still available, by the way. You can go there and mine them for information. Uh, but but John's, if he had a specialty, because he's got a very diverse collection, it would definitely be Montane King Snakes. So, or sorry, Montane Milk Snakes. So if... if Kings. King Snakes, yeah. I was right the first time correcting myself. So John's here. Um, how you doing, John? You Very good. How are y'all? Oh, we're doing great. So... The first question we always ask, standard question when you're on a podcast, what was your start in reptiles? Have you always been doing this? This just start recently? No, uh, I'm going to my history right away. Uh, I grew up on 100 acres in a little town called Rockport, Texas, on the Texas coast. Uh, we moved there when I was like six, so that was like 1977. And uh, my dad was the only good snake is a dead snake type of person. And I wasn't, so I would get up when the sun came up, came home when the sun went down. My parents didn't care, so I was out shooting things and finding reptiles. Uh, I probably found probably 12 Texas scarlet snakes when I was a kid. Uh, they can't be found anymore, hardly at all. <laughs> I think two have been found in the last decade. Uh, so uh, the first snake I ever caught and kept was a, uh, emory eye rat snake which we didn't know they were milmorum back then in rockport <laughs> and uh brought it in fed it kept it for like a year and uh it passed away on me it was huge uh then i started uh finding all the water snakes in our area and uh my dad was a mobile mechanic so all of the winter texans used to come down to to, to Rockport to fish and get away from the cold. And they all stayed at a uh, Mustang Island state park or goose Island state park, which are parks near where I lived. And one day I went in there and was talking to the uh, Rangers and he gave me a couple of pamphlets because I didn't know to go buy books at seven years old, eight years old. By the way, I used to help my dad. He, he believed in child labor. <laughs> And uh, I learned all of the venomous versus non-venomous snakes. So when me and my dad were out fishing and hunting and he would want to kill something, I would go pick it up and say, no, <laughs> it won't hurt you. So uh, from then on, uh, I was hooked. Uh, I mean, there was a little time during high school and college. I really didn't keep anything, but I read a lot then. Uh, I went to UT Arlington and got to see 
that's where I went to school, played baseball and ran out of money and went to work. But anyway, I, I got to see all of the, uh, the pickled jarred, uh, reptiles and amphibians and, and learned a lot there. And then when I got back out of college and was working, uh, I got the Texas field guide and moved to a town 40 miles north of Rockport, Corpus Christi, Texas. And uh, me and my buddies spent three or four years finding everything in the Texas field guide in our area. And got hooked from then. Uh, Like I told you earlier, I found a clutch of eggs in 93 and learned how to hatch them just by reading books. This was before the internet and uh, hatched out 13 mil morum. Sold them to San Diego Zoo and been hooked ever since. Uh, so once you see eggs hatching out of the egg, I think that's what made me addicted. <laughs> so I'm still here. Uh, what was that? 93 to now's 29 years later, 28 years later. Still doing the same thing. But I do. I still mainly do field herping. Uh, uh, I don't have the huge collections I used to have back in 2010 when I was up to like 300 breeders and who knows how many sub adults. Uh, I try to keep my collection around 200 animals, including sub adults and hatchlings now, unless I hatch a lot and I try to get rid of them quickly. But that's where I am. No, I think that's really cool because, um, you know, John, yourself, even talking about the change in the internet and how that really changed the hobby itself. You know, even talking to some of the more experienced um, senior keepers in our hobby, you know, when they talk about reptile shows and things like that back in the 80s, 90s, I mean, it's not what we see today. I mean, yeah, back were, then it was uh, 90% colubrids and there are a few ball pythons and Burmese and retics at some tables. But uh, in my niche of the hobby, uh, I mean, I can't speak for everyone, but. I think colubrids are what started everyone wanting to breed things in captivity because that's what we have here in our, in our nation, in our, where we live. So uh, all I saw was colubrids at the first shows I went to. Uh, I had people like Michael Price, Don Shores and Don Soderberg as my mentors. So, uh, which are great guys, good mentors to have. And uh, I've seen, uh, so what really got me addicted to, online stuff uh, I, I was talking to you already about this too i think it was 95 when everyone got windows 95 and everyone got a computer in their home and uh back then we had to guess what websites were so we would just play around and type in everything so one day i typed in kingsnake.com just to see what would come up and i saw jeff Berenger's site uh i saw the alterna page which really hooked me the alterna page was the first time that i was really wanted to leave where I lived <laughs> to go look for snakes. So I, I saw all these pictures of all these different alterna that were all over West Texas. And it told you the locales. Well, I told you the roads, uh, kind of like INET does now, but not as bad. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but uh, uh, in 98, I finally uh, started going to snake shows and buying breeding or no, 96. I started going to snake shows and buying breeding stock and 98, I started herping all over the place and collecting breeding stock. And uh, 97 was my first year of ever producing snakes without finding eggs like I did back in 93. And it was uh, some of the toughest ever. Some people still have problems with them. And it was uh, Lampropeltus leonis, 
it was Lamperfelder's Alterna, and it was California. So uh, I had a fun time catching lizards. Mm -hmm. <laughs> we didn't know about boiling and braining. I was just catching lizards, feeding lizards, scenting with lizards for probably a decade before I learned all the other tricks. So, John, I mean, in terms, I think you kind of answered this, but would you say basically the fact of colubrids being in high numbers here within the United States, that's kind of what drew you in or made your focus within that colubrids area? Of course, me being a field herper, even before I knew what herper meant, uh, I was snake hunting. <laughs> mm -hmm. Before I even knew what that meant, that, that was my passion was finding what we had locally. Uh, and then I got into breeding what we had locally. Uh, yeah, you know, then I bought books and learned about all the other species that I didn't know about and started getting them. Uh, colubrids on a whole, I mean, I've seen the hobby go from colubrids were top of the line animals. I bought a, a ball python once for 12 bucks. <laughs> and then, <laughs> and then, uh, three years later, uh, a buddy of mine saw it and said, oh, that's a black back. I didn't even know what that was, but <laughs> I traded him for a milk snake because I wanted a milk snake. So, uh, yeah, I've seen it go from colubrids to ball pythons. And I see a lot of these ball pythons guy, ball pythons breeders that thought they were going to make a lot of money, but they were still passionate about animals or reptiles. So they stayed in it. And now they're kind of, I see a lot of them coming to colubrids and buying colubrids. Maybe not for the money aspect. It's, I think uh, those are the ones that are truly passionate about keeping keeping reptiles. Mm -hmm. Now, do you keep anything else outside of the king snakes? Or, mm -hmm. Well, um, I, have, I have over the years. Uh, uh, right now, it's just king snakes and rat snakes and milk snakes. I mean, Mexican milks are my favorite because they're the locality gym down here. Uh, and I have milmorum uh, rat snakes, uh, thorn scrub rat snakes. I have uh, some nice uh, bear eye rat snakes that I've collected and trying to get them going. This was here recently. And then Transpecos rat snakes are probably the most abundant snake that I see in West Texas besides Aatrox, and I have a few of them. Sorry, Zach. That's insane. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. I, I never thought someone would say that. So, no, that's pretty cool. Huh. Oh. I didn't realize that. Uh, other than that, I mean, I used to keep a uh, Croatian Citula, Loxacemus, South Korean Dionys, Neanticolas, Depii, and Jani. But uh, I decided. Yeah, because I acquired your uh, Korean Dionys too. You did? That's got to be what now? 2012? Yeah. I want to say it's, it's been years now. Yeah. There's a couple of people that got them. Did you get my adults or just babies? No, I, I bought your adults from you because oh. um, that's when I ended up getting on your um, wish list for the Applegate specials, too. Oh, you still want those? I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> no, and, you know, even kind of like going into a segue on Applegate, um, I mean, many people, if they haven't looked or knew about history, you know, I don't think a lot of people even knew about Applegate's collection at one time being kind of split up or divided amongst many people. Um, something that, you know, I, I wanted to talk about a little bit here in terms of kind of showcasing like how 
the transfer of lineage and knowledge kind of proceeds from one keeper to the next and how the hobby kind of brings it full circle too. Um, I don't know, John, if you wouldn't mind kind of bringing some of that history in terms of, you know, I know you didn't get all of Applegate's animals, but. Well, I could mainly talk about just the Applegate special pyromelena. Uh, I knew Bob before all this happened. So, you know, I used to drink beer with him at the Daytona show and hear all the funny stories. <laughs> uh, so when Bob decided to get it out, he produced his last snakes in 2016, which a lot of people don't know that he produced some Applegate specials in 2016. Uh, his webmaster was uh, Thomas Muniak. And uh, Willie Moran got every snake he wanted to sell except for his last pyro breeders, which was 2.8. And his last pyro clutches, which was 2.4, or 1.4, sorry. So Thomas made a deal with him and got those. Uh, I really didn't need to get the lineage from Thomas because I already knew that they derived from Huachuca uh, Mountains, which are the old Lampropeltis, Pyromelena, Houdini, Woodeni, however people want to <laughs> say it. And... Uh, I took them from Tom because Tom wasn't doing good in health wise and on a breeding loan have been keeping and breeding them for three or four years now. He got them in 2017 and I got them in 2017 or 2018. Uh, Willie has all the other cool stuff like his albino uh, annulata and his old splotched and albino uh, Sinaloan. I don't know what else happened to his collection. I know he offered it to a lot of people, like my buddy Chris Sharp was offered and a few others, but all I know is Willie and Thomas got the majority and I ended up with the Applegates specials. Very cool. Very, very cool. So just to make sure that some of the listeners that are listening that might be like, and I don't know how you would ask this question, but it's possible. Who's who's Applegate? Could you just kind of give a little brief introduction as to who? Who's Bob Applegate? Yeah. Uh, why he's, why he's are old. we nerding out over this? <laughs> well, Bob, uh, he's somewhat of a pioneer. There were pioneers before Bob. But Bob was one of the first to actually market his animals better than anyone. Uh, he bought wild-caught and F1s from a lot of people. And uh, so if you're a morph miner, that, that's a term I like to use. <laughs> if you breed F1 to F1, you find out where the hidden traits are. If you produce just F1s and keep selling them, you never know until someone else produces them that you sold to, right? Mm -hmm. So uh, he got a lot of F1s and wild cots and popped out these strange things that selective propagation did instead of just breeding wild cots together. So he did great with his splotched animals and his Applegate specials that he called hypo incorrectly. <laughs> I don't <laughs> want to. Uh, a cool story I had with him was because I'm Go a huge, it. huge mix mix breeder. Lepropeltis mexicana used to be Lepropeltis mexicana mexicana, San Luis Potosi king snakes. Uh, he used to have some, and he sold all of them before he ever raised any up and. He sold them all because he was tired of people coming up to his table at Daytona saying those are the coolest Miami 
horns they've ever seen. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh, I got a hold of some from a, a couple of old buddies of mine, Bob Finja, if y'all ever heard of him, and uh, Tommy Agosta, and Carl Dorflane of Boneyard Reptiles. Because uh, after a couple of years, the red saddles turned pink. Hmm. And uh, this is part of another story I want to tell later. Uh, I've been trying to write a book for 10 years, and I don't want to until I figure this out. But uh, we're calling them hypoerythristic. Uh, I probably acquired, bought out everyone in the nation except for one person I know of. So I have all of them. And I just released my first ones this year. But they all derive from Bob's stuff. Bob, Bob had some of the most unique stuff and one-of-a-kinds, world's first kind of things than anyone I know in the in the King Snake world, Oak Snake world, Lampropeltus world. So sticking with the Lampropeltus theme, you've, you've got you know, Getula and Triangulum and then the Pyros and all those. Why Montane Kings? Why is that the group that kind of grabs your imagination, your passion, or is it well, really all of them? <laughs> so Nothing's more variable than a Leonis. Nothing's more variable than a uh, Alterna. So what got me was I can hatch a clutch with banded phase, Leonis phase, some yellow, some orange, some green, all in one clutch. And I found that the most uh, thrilling thing to do. Yeah, the most thrilling thing that I could do was do that. So along with that, there were many other snakes that fit in my my husbandry. My setup was Mexmex and Alterna and and Greerai and Ruth Benai and Ruth Benai King Snakes, not Pitchuokas. <laughs> but uh only thing we can't get is WebEye since uh you know Lacey Act of eighty four kind of shut down any legal there's a weird way to say that legal smuggling right because back in the day back in the day it was still illegal there was just no repercussions in the united states once you got them across mm -hmm. now it's illegal even in the states because of the lacy act gotcha but we have we've been dealt the hands we got on all the mexican kings so that's why we're seeing many strange looking patterns and colors that look nothing like they're the holotype or 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 any of the uh wild caught that we've seen so with, with this group, uh, I'd like to talk a little bit about the term Thayeri because I, I've, I've, I read your article today and I'll fully admit that this is a learning experience for me because this is a group that I've not kept. So I'm green as green can be tonight. But uh, when I was in um, at Florida Tech, I was one of my jobs was to take care of the snake collection there. And it was really cool because the professor that was maintaining the snake collection it was you know, they were like the research animals and then there were all these other animals that had nothing to do with pit vipers or pythons because we were studying the pits and they were just things that the professor liked to keep and i distinctly remember back then that would have been in 2003 that i was cleaning what felt like hundreds and hundreds of bins that had the word therai yep. written on there um so that was obviously an old taxonomic term but now yeah, there's been some revisionary work and such, or or or, or what's the deal with that? Uh, so uh, we want to go way back in history. Uh, 
the first named animal from Nuevo Leon king snake, uh, Lampropeltus, from Nuevo Leon was the Lampropeltus leonis. Uh, later, military guy by the last name Athayer collected some there and uh, sent them, I forgot to what zoo, but uh, they renamed them uh, Lampropeltus theri, Mexicana theri. And uh, after years and years of people figuring this out about a decade ago, people like Robert Hansen and Jerry Salmon, myself, and other herpeticulturists started calling them all Lampropeltus leonis, uh, dropping the trinomial name and just mm-hmm. go ahead and elevating them to their own species. Uh, the Mexicana Bibles, what we call it, was written two years ago by, or three years ago maybe now, by Jerry Salmon, Robert Hansen, and elevated all of them to uh, their own species status, dropping the misnomer theri and calling them Lampropeltus leonis. Okay, cool. Yeah, I remember breeding them, man, got to be like seven years ago, and you would produce just odds and ends, just in terms of colorations, patterns. They've made me call in sick to work before. (laughs) (laughs) When they're hatching, you've got to know what the next one looks like. (laughs) Yep. Yeah. All right, cool. So, (sighs) sorry. So now that we've established that, we're going to talk a little bit about keeping these guys. Um, so we've introduced – well, before we get to the Applegate enclosure, what is your basic setup for one of these montane kings? Keeping these montane king snakes, uh, it's all about providing options. So in a tub, which I keep most of my snakes in 32-quart tubs, they're only three-foot adults, so – I believe that's plenty good for them. But uh, uh, to provide options, I keep my snake room at 74 degrees. Uh, I use back heat. Uh, I set that temp gun with, uh, I mean, with the temp gun at 82 degrees. That way, uh, if you keep it too hot, uh, which ideal would be able to keep one side 50 degrees and the other side 110 degrees, but that's, that's not possible typically. So 82 and 74 seems to work best so that they have a, a place to metabolize and a place to conserve uh, instead of keeping them at the 80 degree ambient and they always want to eat and anything that moves, they bite. So <laughs> you see a lot of people that ask that question, why does my snake bite? It's because you don't give them any lower temperature to conserve. They're always in the metabolizing mood. Uh, so I put in about three inches of aspen three to four inches so that I don't have to provide a hide. They can make tunnels and thermal regulate and be at any temperature they need to be. Uh, I put things on top of the Aspen like uh, plastic lid or paper plate or a newspaper so that they can come to the top and still hide. Uh, I sometimes, especially around shedding, I uh, provide a moist hide with damp sphagnum moss. Uh, I I don't have to provide this all the time because I live in South Texas on the coast and very high humidity. Uh, So the idea behind all of this is they can be in the back of the tub where the heat is and be at the very bottom of the substrate. And they're very dark, dry, warm. Uh, They can come up to the top and it's light, dry, warm. 
they can go over to the sphagnum moss and be warm, moist, dark, or light. Uh, they can come to the front of the tub and they can be either down low and be dark and dry and cool or up top and they can be dark, I mean light and dry and cool. And then there's a water bowl where they can have that cool, moist on the cool side too. So when we get into the apple getting closer discussion, it, it kind of perfects that and isolates those way better than a tub would. And uh, yeah. <laughs> well, let's just jump right into the apple gate enclosure. So, so uh, apple gate enclosure provides all this by subfloor drawers. So uh, I usually have uh, they're four foot to five foot long by by somewhere over two foot tall, two foot deep, and uh, they have a hole drilled into the floor with a PVC tube going into two different containers. You can get, you can, uh, Applegate finally got them where they're all connected with bulkhead fittings. They had like four or five different levels. But uh, I have two containers, slide out tubs, drawers uh, that are subfloor and one of them's always dry and one of them's always damp. Uh, I've tried uh, UV lighting, LED lighting, room lighting up above ground. I haven't seen the benefit of UV, but uh, they, if provided, unless they're heat source, definitely they're going to use it. Uh, I've read all the papers and understand that a lot of people have seen some benefit. Uh, right now, I just use LED lighting in them uh, or incandescent bulbs in them just for providing that light option. So when the snake uh, is above ground, it has heat tape in the back also. So when above ground, they can be dry bright warm or cool uh below ground in the wet side or damp side they could be uh, damp moist warm or cool and in the dark and then on the dry side uh, they just added that dark option to the dry warm or cool uh, also the damp moss uh, is a nest box for females yeah and cool. uh I've uh, kept successfully, I don't recommend any new person doing this, but I've kept uh, pairs and trios in there, no problem. Uh, Montane kings aren't very cannibalistic, uh, but if raised together, they they live together well. Don't ever put two males in there, they'll fight. But a male with two females and a male with another female works just fine. So I have some questions because this is pretty awesome. Uh, because one of the things that you're supposed to do with, with one of the things that's pushed currently in herpetoculture is choice, and I don't think you, I don't think there's a colubrid in America that has more choice than a snake living in that setup where it can go cool, dark, dry, dark, light, you know, blah blah okay. blah. Do, do you see them like basking? Like, do you see them coiled up under lights? Or this group historically is primarily crepuscular and nocturnal correct uh in experience in the field uh, i think they're 99 percent nocturnal uh, yeah uh we may be able to get into this later or i can say it now uh go for it these snakes that live in rocks they live in rocks 99 percent of their time they might get close to the edge to get the radiation from the sun to metabolize meals uh at night i think they just come out on accident 
<laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. The shining rocks on a cut, and they just crawled out because they were crawling down a crack. So uh, uh, that's my only uh, debate against UV with this type of snake. I mean, if you have a boa or a python or or something like that, I, I'm sure they benefit from it, lizards especially. But uh, these snakes that I have, uh, I've never seen one out in the daylight, and I've only heard of one out in the daylight. No, that's well, and I think that kind of brings it like full circle, if you will, because you know everyone asks for uh, a care sheet specifically to animals in terms of you know, well, how do I need to keep this? And really, that's well, kind I, of the mint. Yeah. Oh, go ahead. Two different kinds of care sheets. Are you are you just going to be a keeper, or are you going to be a breeder? Right. Right. Because we know y'all y'all two know well that we don't go by a care sheet and and weigh mice and snakes and and. Uh, feed them per right because I, I have male snakes that go off feed in october and they don't eat again until june mm-hmm. right yeah well they go through brumation they get out of brumation they might eat one or two meals after brumation and then they breed and they don't think about anything else but breeding they do not want to eat and then when they're done breeding they'll eat in june so now what do i have i have from june to august september and that's it to feed them so right I feed them heavily. Uh, a female out of brumation needs to eat way more than once a week. Mm-hmm. And my, I'm again, I'm talking about kind of kings I'm talking about or or montane kings. Uh, so I feed heavily, like every three days out of brumation until I see ovulation. I don't wait for the first shed anymore, which I used to in years past. I think I've I've missed some ovulation windows by doing that, but. Uh, I keep detailed spreadsheets because I'm a nerd and I know, I know all the durations of what they've done in years past. And I typically bring them out, uh, March 1st to March 15th on April 1st. A lot of them get paired up because they're already ovulating. Uh, sometimes yeah. we wait for that first shed and, uh, that was probably for some of my snakes, their pre-egg laying shed instead mm-hmm. of the ovulation shed. So I just pair them all up April 1st and some of them, you know, they're not ovulating yet and you, they do it right after that shed, but it's kind of like a 50, 50 split with my collection. Sometimes the very first shed is their pre over position, egg laying shed. That's crazy. Well, and I think part of that even kind of plays into the, the field herping aspect, right? I mean, getting a better biological sense of experiencing, you know, where these animals are naturally found, understanding them, even watching them in captivity, like, you know, you mentioned in terms of the applegate enclosures, watching what they're actually utilizing, whether it's in a rack and a cage, um, just properly monitoring that and giving them choices. Right. And a lot of people don't know how to palpitate for follicles or, or see them swelling because they keep animals fat. <laughs> right. <laughs> I try to keep animals like I find them in the wild, which are usually... Well, mine are a little heavier than the wild because usually when you find an alternate in the wild, it's pretty, it's pretty skinny. Pyro's pretty dang skinny compared to how we keep them. Uh, I haven't had the luxury to find Mexicana in the wild because <laughs> I don't go to Mexico. Anyway, uh, one thing I wanted to say about the Applegate enclosure last year, I kept a pair of Applegate pyros for a trio, one male that was a visual special and two females that were het 
And uh, I got one female to double clutch, which I've never done before in my life. I didn't do it on purpose. I just keep them together, right? Mm-hmm. The coolest thing about it is both clutches, 100% were all specials. Seven the first time, six the second. So I had 13 specials from a het by visual breeding, which was very strange. I don't know if the enclosure had anything to do with it. It was just luck, I guess. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Hit the odds. But uh, getting them to double clutch, I've never been able to do before. Uh, I think keeping them together all the time helps. Sometimes you don't yeah. want snakes to double clutch, but uh, I'm pretty anal attentive and keep everything <laughs> healthy. Mm-hmm. You know, it's interesting you kind of bring up a, a point I don't think a lot of keepers even realize that some species actually do better by habituating them in that kind of setup where you have them in pairs year round. Um, like when, I mean, in years past when I've bred Persinum, I've always kept them together as pairs. They bred th- throughout the winter. You know, um, the coolest thing I've seen is the male knows which one's going to ovulate first. Mm-hmm. The male will go hang out with the female that he, I mean, they, they were brought out of brumation all at the same time. The male will go to one female and hang out with her the entire time. She's the first one to ovulate, first one to breed. As soon as he's done, he will go hang out with the other one, which I found interesting. And you don't see that when you keep them in separate enclosures, no. separate drawers. No. And you know, a bunch of food in there, the male doesn't want to eat. It looks like, oh, he's just letting the females eat, which I always thought was cool. Yeah. No, yeah, it, you know, and, and John, just to kind of go into a little bit more about like breeding introductions, things of that nature. Um, do you keep one to one typically or pair one to one or do you do multiple males? Uh, I never do backup males because I always want to know what male father to clutch. Right. Uh, not everyone knows this, but a female can become gravid from more than one male. I proved mm-hmm. it years ago with some uh, speckled king snakes. I had a uh, albino female speckled king, and I bred it to a normal, and I bred it later to a het. And uh, she laid like 15 eggs, and all of them were albino but one. So we know that <laughs> <laughs> we know the uh, the normal one at least fertilized one egg, and he wasn't head albino because I tested that too. Uh, so yeah, I have, in my world, it, it's tough for a male to handle more than three females. Uh, typically, it's one to one. Pyros are quick, though. I, you know, I kind of time these things. I'm strange like that. Pyros are quick, uh, so they can rejuvenate and mm-hmm. and breed multiple a whole lot more than say a mex mex that hooks up for twenty hours sometimes. Oh. So, <laughs> stamina, yeah, I know. <laughs> uh, but, yeah, uh, when doing uh, multiple females, it, it, it's a, a juggling act of separating, feeding one day. And uh, a good trick is sometimes just the feeding kicks off the male. You, you throw a mouse in with a female right after she eats, throw, throw a male in there, and he, he's ready to go. Uh, I usually don't have a problem with males just laying around not trying because I actually – wait for ovulation instead of just trying too early or too late. So, uh, yeah, feed them, separate, I mean, separate, feed, put them back together, separate, feed another female, put it back together. So every two or three days, it, it's hard to juggle them. And that's if they're 
all ovulating at the same time. So when you get females ovulating at different times, it's even worse because you don't know if the male is spent or not. But we keep gotcha. going. <laughs> yeah, no, it's interesting because um, and, and the reason I asked that is over the years, I've actually started to keep more males than females. And part of it is just to have um, surplus males in case you don't see a male cycling properly. Mm-hmm. Um, this way you had someone to back up in terms of breeding. I've heard that all my whole career breeding is you can't have too many males, but I haven't seen (laughs) the use for it as much as other people. Oh yeah. Well, it's always interesting. I think from um, the hobby side where people always inquire about buying a trio where I'm always like, well, what happens if the male dies? Now you have two females, right? Well, they never think about anything's going to (laughs) perish. Well, you yeah. work with life, you work with death. That's what yes, I've always been to. <laughs> so. And the male's job in all this is to go out and actually instigate the breeding most of the time. So if you've got a dud male, you can have multiple ladies, but that means nothing in the grand scheme of things because he's, they're not the ones that are instigating the, the breeding. So on this breeding topic, to back up just a little bit, with these guys, what what's the whole brumation process look like? Is Is it a... Solid brumation, or is it, a, you know, unique to them or typical colubri? What's the deal on that front? Well, first of all, I, I live in an area where it's over 110 degrees for 90 days straight. Uh, we might hit freezing once every other year. Last year was the exception and made up for it, but <laughs> we, <laughs> yeah. we were below freezing for a week, and it messed up our entire city. Uh, but I have this thing called a cool bot temperature controller it is my best investment ever for these type of snakes uh back 20 years ago i did it in a southern ingenuity type of way by using a uh, heat pad on the wall and i pulled out the pitot tube or temperature sensor of a window unit air conditioner and i adjusted the distance from this heat pad so that the air conditioner would overcool uh, the lowest setting on these window units that we have are 60 degrees. So I always want to hit 50 degrees. You know, all the care sheets and everything say 55, but if you're reading Pyros or Zanata or Greerai, it usually doesn't work at 55. Uh, 48 to 50 is usually the best temps. Uh, so nowadays, they the only problem I had with my old way of doing that is the, the coils would freeze up when it overcooled. So... Had to go out there with a the water hose and, and detail it and get it going again, which was terrible because in the summer it could be 80 degrees here. So it warmed up to 80 while I was trying to cool it off or detail it. So this uh, CoolBot controller is made for uh, deer hunters that want walk-in coolers in their ranch or things like that. Hmm. So these this will hold, depending on the unit size, I think mine's a 20,000 BTU. It'll hold my two-car garage, and I had to test it this year for personal reasons. <laughs> uh, it'll hold my two-car garage down to 50 degrees for four and a half months, no problem. That's uh, cool. And uh, it has a little delay on it to where once uh, the coil temperature, because you have a sensor on the coils, once the coil temperature hits 33, it'll kick off the compressor and keep the fan going so it'll thaw it out. Huh. It'll never freeze. Uh, and it works great. So uh i've tried other ways i build a big insulated box and slide it over 
a window unit, all kinds of ways. And this is a no brainer. $300 investment made me thousands, right? <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> so it, it's great. Uh, so yeah, so uh, I quit feeding uh, probably mid-October. Uh, everyone says two weeks on the care sheets, but I've seen snakes crap in brumation two months later. So <laughs> I, I try to at least give them six weeks. Uh, usually around Thanksgiving to December 1st is when I drop them down to 60 degrees. From 74 to 60, it takes a while for the room to get to 60, so there's no shock to them. Uh, a week after December 1st, I set it for 50 and uh, nearly set it and forget it. I mean, I'll come in maybe once a week, once every two weeks, and replace water bowls with fresh water. And then I warm them back up around March 1st to 60 degrees. And then March 15th, they're at 74, and only the females get the heat tape turned on. Hmm. Right? Uh, the males at 74, since they are high elevation animals, they will digest. It just takes them longer. They will digest a meal. Uh, females have that 82 degrees, so they can eat a lot and go hang out on the hot side. Uh, and then, like I said, I... Don't wait for a pre-ovulation shed. Uh, just from data that I've collected over the, especially the last five years, is uh, I put them together April 1st and they start breeding. Uh, some of them don't, and I wait for that shed and they start breeding. Uh, usually six weeks from uh, ovulation to oviposition. Uh, they lay the eggs six weeks after they ovulate. And uh, I take those and I have a pretty it's not really unique because about five or six of us do it now that I know of. I use a closed system incubation for the eggs hmm. where I use large, large granule perlite. Uh, I don't do the one-to-one -one ratio because that's too wet for these. Uh, these are montane, low humidity animals, mainly uh, in the desert also. Mm -hmm. It's amazing how dry it could be in these eggs will hatch uh, a lot of dead in eggs i believe are caused by drowning or non non-brittleness of eggshells too pliable and they can't cut them so uh again it is damp enough because i use a closed system with no holes at all in this and i put the eggs on top lightly on top none of it buried into the perlite uh, put it on top put the lid on it and set it on my top shelf, which is about 78 to 80 degrees. So day 45 comes and uh, the tubs I've used before, I put tape over the holes. So I just pull the tape off the four little holes I have in there, or I pop four holes in the container. And uh, a week after day 45, the eggs start dimpling. A week after that, they pip. Gotcha. I think I think the dippling and the dryness and brittleness of the egg of them finally drying out and getting oxygen because they don't need oxygen until around the last week anyway. Uh, I am guilty of opening it up and checking on them in that 45 day period anyway, <laughs> so I do open <laughs> them up. Uh, but uh, that dimpling and the brittleness of the eggs causes them to pip without any help. I know a lot of alternative breeders that continuously get dead in eggs. And they're still using damp, wet, wet perlite, burying eggs. And uh, I, I know why. I mean, I used to get one, I mean, 10 out of every 100 babies were DIEs, dead in eggs. 
Uh, now it's like one to every hundred. You know, John, just in, in terms of this conversation, if you will, a um, couple things that kind of pop up in, in my mind, or at least in terms of conversation here, is one you mentioned about keeping males down and um, raising the temperature in terms of the males and just thinking about their natural biology. I mean, where they're found, you know, do you think by keeping the males down for a few extra weeks actually helps the follicular de development of the female and that male sperm then is able to trigger that, you know, ovulation, um, reproductive cycle to fertilize those ova? You know, I never thought of it in that aspect. That, that's a great point. Uh, my whole thinking is I don't want them to be warm because there's this, I don't know if it's a wives tell or not, but it, males get warm. It's going to kill the sperm. But my question was always, well, once it's in the females and they go to the heat, it's not killing them. So I, I don't know if it's true or not. So my thinking is uh, I never, I never kept the males down longer for brumation. I don't know if I said that wrong earlier. I usually bring them out at the same time. Okay. Right. Uh, I have been known to bring in males out earlier so they don't smell the pheromones and shut down breeding because I wanted to get some meals in them. But your your thinking there has me intrigued, and you know I might I might try that. <laughs> well, and you know it, it was just something when you were talking about how bringing up the females, um, it just kind of triggered in terms of you know the field biology sense of yep. you know maybe the males are still hunkered down. Um, the other thing in terms of that, you go yeah. out to West Texas and look for Alterna, you're only going to find males wandering around that time of year. Usually <laughs> yeah, you find more females like this time of the year that are trying to get meals before brumation. Yeah. Males well, are, and even, males are wondering. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, even talking to, um, some field biologists in terms of finding eggs, you know, you usually find a hundred percent success rate. Yep. Right. Um, which is always interesting. I was amazed from... here. A buddy of mine found a milk snake in the wild. And that was gravid. And it laid four good eggs and one bad. I'm like, wow, I've never heard of a wild snake laying a slug. <laughs> They're always usually good. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and, you know, talking about that, you start to wonder about diet. Yeah. Um, you know, like what you mentioned in terms of the animals that you found and things like that, where they're much more slender, yeah. you know, you have to start to wonder, are we overfeeding these animals in captivity? Um, oh, definitely. The, the only egg binding I've ever seen was from infertile eggs. I've never seen a snake egg bound with good eggs. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So uh, it scares me when a three-year-old pyro that's only, uh, let's say 24 inches long ovulates. Man, I almost want to just throw a male in on her just so they're good eggs so she don't egg bound. But I had four females just lay slugs that I didn't even pair them up because they were just undersized to me. But I'm sure in the wild, they breed. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that these animals breed way sooner than than we realize. But I'm not – but I also think that in herpetoculture circles, if you power feed and you push something – uh, you, you can run into the problem you're talking about right now, which is if you get those animals to ovulate um, without the eggs getting fertilized, which happens, you know, the, those ova are developed. They're, they're essentially a 
a mass that has to be pushed out, but they're not normal. They're, and that's when you end up getting the egg binding. Yeah, um, what I was taught years ago is it's very, very hard to make a growing snake obese, right? Mm -hmm. taking, taking these calories, this meal, not only to sustain, but to also grow. So you can feed it every three days, and it's not ever going to get obese. It's just going to grow faster. An adult snake doesn't have much growing left to do, right? So it's yep. going to pack on fatty deposits and things like that if you feed it too much. Yeah, and, uh, and a response of females to fat is yep. get it out. And one of the ways you get it out is mm -hmm. through pathways that lead to the development of those eggs. That's why... Our snakes probably double clutch in human care way more than they're double clutching in nature. Right. Um, when I was working on the the Dipsadid book, uh, it was really kind of interesting because on this exact same topic, a lot of the scientific papers were talking about how um, it's not the same exact seasons in South America as it is here. But basically, you have your your kind of cool down in the winter time, then you get your follicular development, what equates to a springtime. And then you get a clutch of eggs. And then what they were seeing is like, they saw that a lot in the girls, but what they would see in the other animals was that late summer, there were follicles kind of ready to go, but but it was half the clutch size of what it was originally. You know, here with me, same, you know, different species, but same topic, the water cobras, uh, those animals are producing 60 eggs a year, which is insane. 230 egg clutches and it's yeah, just because become feeding them so much they become so, being downwind of a male you know yeah yes they do <laughs> they do <laughs> and they do sperm storage which uh is also great so i'm not gonna let my breeders go next year and i'm fairly positive i'm gonna get fertile eggs out of at least one of them just by them storing oh, over winter sperm yeah yeah mm -hmm. I've, I've seen it many times with these kings of a second clutch being laid fertile without reintroduction of a male but I've never seen overwintering of sperm. Yeah, it, it totally can happen. Um, I'll we'll get back to your Montane Kings, but one day we'll talk about the process that that goes down with because I was totally blown away when I was reading wow. some papers about some stuff. There was a there was a well just to whet the appetite of everybody. There was a musarana in a serpentarium in Brazil. It it bred one time because it ate the male. So that's how we know that the male was was gone. And that female laid like three clutches, and their third clutch was two and a half years later. So that's a lot of calories. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but back to the back to these guys. So babies, you you, you get the babies, they hatch, and then they're uh, eating in the butt. You said it, not me. I was just about <laughs> yeah. to say. So are we like? If you look at harvesting my lizards, I'm only 20 <laughs> years old with all this white hair, but uh -huh. I'm a bludgeon for punishment because. Yeah. This is all I've ever worked with, and there are 3,000 techniques, yep. tricks, and you have to do them all because there's no golden bullet. There's no right? golden bullet. Are there a top three, or is it just literally throw the kitchen sink and figure out what works? Well, uh, back when I used to have my website, I have these steps I go through. I always offer a frozen fall first, regardless. Mm -hmm. If they take it, you're done, right? Uh, then there's braining, then there's scenting, and there's a million ways to scent, and the Sometimes it takes the right lizard or the right scent. Rubbing it in the dirt sometimes works. But anyway, <laughs> then there's scenting, and then there's boiling. Then there's boiled brain. Then there's live brain. Then there's live. Then there's washed with dish soap. There's uh, all kinds of all kinds of tricks I have to do. 
my uh, my freezer went out last this winter, and I lost all my all my lizards. So I'm lizard hunting right now. <laughs> yeah. Is there one and, type and of lizard? A, and it's not a species thing on the snakes either. No, uh, no little brown skinks are like cracked to a lot of things. So mm-hmm. it, it helps a lot. Uh, uh, Medgex uh, helps on some, but not others. Uh, I threw throw live ones in there sometimes and they kind of like snuggle up and sleep together <laughs> uh we have green anoles and brown anoles here in corpus uh i go out west to get uda salophorus uh whiptails crevice spinies all that uh and use pieces of them blended make make puree make all kinds of things that are I mean, my wife gave me a couple of blenders there you go <laughs> Nice. Uh, but yeah, and it's not a species thing on the snake. Everyone says, oh, Greer Eye are the worst, worst. Pyros are the worst. Zanata are the worst. I said, man, I had a clutch of corns that were the worst. So it's not a species mm-hmm. thing. It's, and I'm a firm believer you can lion breed for good feeders, right? Mm-hmm. Just like any other trait. Uh, there is this interesting paper I read about, uh, I don't know the correct term, but scenting while the eggs are incubating with bedding from mice and things like that to get them in tune with eating. That's their meal when they're come when they emerge. So always wanted to try it, still haven't. So I just mess with lizards and pumping with, with uh, Gerber's baby food or, or carnivore care or things like that. Uh, I, I typically get eggs late, which is great in my field of, of these type of kings because I just got to get them to the, End of end of November, and I can brumate them, right? And uh, I've seen too. Once you get metabolism started, it's hard to keep the weight on them, weight on them all the way to brumation. So uh, sometimes it's best not to even mess with them if they keep, unless you see weight loss, which some of them don't. They don't lose an ounce hardly all the way to mm-hmm. to uh, brumation. Uh, I think a lot of snakes do that in a while. I think they hatch yeah. later in the year and just wait for cold weather and they don't eat until March or April the next year. Yeah. It's a, that's kind of an interesting topic just because working with mandarins, um, the Japanese forest rats, you know, with them hatching out, you can even monitor their weight and it doesn't change throughout the summer. They'll yep. keep that same weight on. And then if you cool them, they'll come back out in the spring and just start pounding food. Yeah. Um, well, they don't always do <laughs> in my <yeah>. world. <laughs> I have sometimes two-year-olds that still haven't eaten anything. But yeah, it, but they still look fine. That's kind of like the the crazy part, I think. Miniatures. Yeah, they you got know, a twenty-inch like brother, and they're still like seven inches long. <laughs> yeah. Well, and it's kind of interesting, you know, even talking about like you were talking about the rodent bedding and things like that. The most interesting one that I've I've heard of recently is keeping the eggs that the snake hatched out of and scenting with the i've done um, it so yeah yeah they don't, they don't work on all of them sometimes it's a trick but yeah yeah and, and that's something I, I haven't those gooey things after they hatch and then thaw them out and try it i don't know if freezing them hurt it but it didn't work great yeah uh, i bought all of the lizard scents and i mean 20 years ago there was a little bottle called lizard maker that didn't work for anything, right? Uh, yeah. I bought the, the anole juice and the gecko juice. It works for some, but not all. Uh, the best scenting method is making a puree 
dipping their heads in it. And, uh, you find the lizard that they like, which is a trick sometimes. Sometimes you keep on trying geckos and anoles, and that's not even from their area, so they don't eat them. Uh, but you, if you find the lizard that they like, uh, then you start sending live pinks with that lizard and then thawed and then weaning them off. And then that's how you get there. Uh, like I said, I mean, last year I hatched like 300 babies and 100 of them were non-feeders. <laughs> and I still got 20 or 30 that are pain. Yeah, that, that's actually a question I have. So is it about two thirds of them will go for the mice? I. <laughs> Just in my experience with the lines, I got to make that point. With the lines I have, uh, I have some close to wild lines, uh, even Leonis. Yeah. I got some Arambarai uh, locality stuff, part locality stuff. But anyway, uh, closer they are to the wild, the worse it is. But mine's usually 70% eat, 30% don't. Oh, golly. Which is yeah, and I, I think that's kind of an interesting aspect that a lot of us take for granted in terms and, of captive reproduction. And what are we doing? We're selectively breeding. We're taking the prettiest ones and keeping them, right? Mm -hmm. And we're trying to improve that or make more like that. Well, usually the pretty ones are the ones that don't eat. So, so we're just passing <laughs> on that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, and, um, you know, working with some wild-caught animals, it's, it's interesting because it's usually not till the third or fourth generation that you start to see animals not requiring scenting not, and they take off a lot better. Yeah. It depends on the line still too. Uh, Applegate pyros. Those are some of the worst feeders I ever had. Mine. But I hear other people saying they're great. There's eat fine. So I guess Bob sold the easy feeders and held back. <laughs> feeders, right? Yeah. I don't know. Um, all the ones I've had over the years, I've, I've had to tail to get going. <laughs> Um, which over time becomes very. How many tails you got to give them though? Because I've given tails to some for over a year, and they're not growing at all. And it, to keep any weight on them, it's every three or four days. Yeah, get a tail into them. Yeah. If you do it once a week, they start losing weight. Yeah, and, and you'll see them just demise very rapidly too, because you know one of the things you kind of mentioned or hit on, I think, which is a, a crucial element of captive care with this group is too many people try to dial in their thermostats or set them at 88 degrees. And they're thinking like, Oh, well this environment, this tub or cage, you know, it's going to be perfect for them. Right. Um, where really that's where I see the Applegate enclosure style bringing on a whole different realm for captive keeping because by giving them I get that a variety, I gotta make these little 300 of these little bitty applicator enclosures. That's a good idea. <laughs> yeah. You never know, right? You know, um, I sent y'all a uh, a picture yeah. of an old idea I had of I called it the Lasseter layer tub insert. I tried to turn a tub into an applicator enclosure. One side would be cool, and it doubled the footprint of the of the tub, which gave it more livable space, and it also mm -hmm. had isolated moist side and isolated dry side. But I never, I never thought anyone would even, I mean, back then they were buying $35 king snakes. Why would they spend any more money on this? Well, and, you know, um, what was it? On one of the forums, well, Facebook forums, if you will, or pages or groups, I saw recently someone had atriceps and they had 3D printed 
kind of a yeah. enclosure at the very front of the water bowl for eggling, which I thought was kind of interesting because did you? I replied on that. Did you see me? I yeah. On that. Yep. I said, yeah, um, pretty good idea. I had something similar. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, but you, you start to wonder, I mean, you, you could really go down a number of um, rabbit holes with keeping a number of different species in this style or manner. Um, oh, yeah. I, I think these things I've are even stacked, I've even stacked big Sterilite tubs with bulkhead uh, uh, PVC fittings. Uh, an old buddy of mine, he is an old, but he's an old friend, <laughs> uh, <laughs> used to uh, stack up. Uh, nested tubs he would get one deep tub and stack another deep tub in it and it wouldn't always uh you gotta get the right kind to do this and it doesn't it leaves an underground space about three inches two inches mm -hmm. and he would put a hole in the top tub that was nested inside of it so that they would have that underground area also yeah and you know even this style of keeping i don't even think just is specific to colubrids um you know, over the years, I think many people have gone down that rabbit hole of uh, Poland pythons. Yeah. Um, and I've seen some very interesting colubrid keepers come up with very similar keeping styles in this manner of applegate enclosures for those species. And well, that specific species, and they utilize every aspect of it. It's all about options. I mean, yeah. they might spend 80% underground, but they're going to use every bit of it when they need to. Yeah. Um, John, in terms of like feeding, do you do anything in terms of calcium or vitamins or supplementation with your rodents or, or is everything commercially bought rodents? Do you um, raise your own rodents, anything like that? Uh, I've done it all uh, here in the last decade. I've just bought frozen rodents and that's all I use. Okay. Fall out. I, I see uh if you thaw out with water, I see a lot of problems with them turning it down. But if you thaw them out and just let them stay dry like they are, yeah. you never see that problem. Never see any problems. Yeah, I, I always just find it interesting in terms of, you know, some of the well, different. There's an old, uh, I don't know if it's a wives tale or truth, but a lot of alterna breeders were thinking that they needed to add uh calcium because they eat lizards in the wild so they added calcium and then had a bunch of dead babies dead in egg babies because they couldn't cut through the eggshell because of too much calcium when like i said earlier i think they were just keeping them too wet <laughs> and didn't let that dimpling and and uh the eggshells getting brittle so they can cut them they were just too pliable and wet but like i said just regular frozen rodents i try to them out dry well it's interesting even to your incubation style um i actually keep a lot of my eggs drier over the years and a lot of that is just purely i think that we do keep them too moist i think that's why you see eggs go bad um actually when i incubate my eggs i actually put a layer of dry perlite on the top mm -hmm. even too as well to absorb some of that that's excess the same mentality as using the diffu light diffuser grid right mm-hmm <laughs> yeah. Um, but also, I mean, in terms of the means which you talked about in terms of removing either the tape or poking holes in, you know, you almost have to wonder even too in the field or their natural habitat, if you aren't experiencing aspects of rain 
moisture that are actually stimulating those animals to actually right. start to hatch. Um, it'd be interesting even too, I mean, from your perspective, you know, talking about some of that field biology that kind of brings it forward. Um, because I, I think you would see some of that too as well that kind of stimulates the hatching behavior of some of these animals. Yeah, great point. Yeah, it's it's not always just a uh, turnkey solution for this. No. We uh, we Ooh. overthink or underthink a lot of it. Um, well, that that first clutch of eggs I found, uh, the <laughs> the technique I used was very elaborate because that's what was in the book I had. I had a had a ten gallon aquarium, put a cinder block in it. <laughs> and I filled it all the way up with water until the water didn't go over the center block. I put perlite eggs, holes, uh, put the eggs on the perlite in a tub on top of the center block and put an aquarium heater in the water. Mm-hmm. And that's how did, they hatched. Did you say you got that out of a book? Yes, sir. I, I know the book. You saw the like, drawing, right? Uh-huh. Breeding and Keeping Snakes. Yeah, TFH book, because that's how I incubated my first cl- clutch of corn snake eggs, because that's what I thought I had to do. Exact same thing. And then a uh, few, d- few years later, it was just, I threw some uh, damp paper towels in there, and they hatched. And then a few years later, I, I went to hatch right, and then I did all everything. I think this is the way I'm going to do it until the day I die, is this <laughs> slightly wet perlite. On top of a oh, shelf. Yeah. Well, and it, it's crazy. Well, on top too. of the water heater before too, uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> or in the bathroom where it's always humid. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. It's. Um. I mean, even myself, I get a lot of hack because I still use hubbaters, which is like they everyone. They still do. <laughs> <laughs> but um, like my mentality around always using hubbaters was I'm not putting all my eggs in one basket, if you will. Literally. So if like yeah. So if one incubator went bad which knock on wood i mean those they'll still have yeah i mean yeah but i mean those things have been reliable i still have some that are 15 years old and still working just on those um well i i grew up listening to frank Reedus tell stories about him and ernie wagner doing all kinds of tests with eggs rolling them like a chicken egg rotating them juggling them throwing them back and forth and I said they always hatched. So I never marked the top of an egg. I've dropped a clutch on the ground before and put them in there and they still hatch. So it, yeah, there's a lot of rules out there which are just best case scenario, but uh, they're pretty uh, resilient, eggs are. Uh, another thing I see is if egg does go bad or it was bad when I put it in there in a closed system, it doesn't mold and it doesn't spread to other eggs it just kind of shrivels up and turns color and there's a bright white egg right in the middle of a bad clutch that never gets Mm -hmm. affected you know that's kind of interesting um just because i've had eggs go bad and you know over the years i've started to just separate eggs in terms of before putting them in enclosures to put in but i've never had eggs kind of just spread mold across the board usually if it's an it all over the internet i see it everyone showed pictures of these look terrible but they hatch i went like how did that happen <laughs> yeah well and i think it kind of brings true to your point of where you live them too wet too oh, wet right. where you live yeah yeah 
Well, we have forward flies here too, bad. So another reason for closed system is there ain't no forward flies going in there either. Yeah, I hate forward flies. Me too. <laughs> There's literally they're in here right now in my office. Uh, that's that's kind of cool. One of the things about the eggs that I thought thinks pretty interesting is a lot of times when people get the eggs and they you get that kind of bluish green slime fuzz that ends up on an egg i was talking with some people here and then it was confirmed with one of the npr podcasts recently that's actually a suit that's pseudomonas bacteria that's actually not mold and a lot of people think that's mold it's, it's you know it's it's going to spread but that bacteria needs a certain level of oxygen and the oxygen level needs to be kind of low so that's why you you kind of get a microclimate within the egg mass and where the conditions are good for that bacteria to take out one egg, that's part of the reason why you'll see it like on one and it doesn't do that kind of spread out across the whole clutch. Because we had that happen in here at the school every now and then. And I have the, the benefit of having microbiologists down the hallway. So I was like, hey, what the hell is this? <laughs> you know, and, and they were like, oh, I think it's this, blah, blah, blah. And, and we, we tested it. And sure enough, that's where it was. And I think it was... um. The, the guy, I think it's Dr. Ross, who wrote the, the, the Blue Bible for Pythons, when Eric and Owen interviewed him, he talked about that, like, literally the week that I found that out. So that's pretty cool. So I've got some questions. Um, if, if we could switch gears a little bit, maybe, to just field herping. You, you said that that's kind of where, where their passions lie. How does... How does being a herpetoculturist impact you as a herper? Does it, or do you get more of a of an impact being a herper helping you be a herpetoculturist? This is a I question think, I've wanted to ask people. I think it's the latter. Uh, mm -hmm. Like I said, I think my passion is field herping. Uh, finding a target species is better than watching eggs hatch, and watching mm -hmm. eggs hatch is pretty damn cool, right? Yep. So uh, learning about what they do in the wild and when they do it helps. I think it helps become a better snake keeper. Agree 100%. Yeah. Uh, there's people that do it the other way. I mean, they keep a lot and they herp every now and then. I, I think first and foremost, learning <laughs> learning how they live is, is, is the best. Mm -hmm. So ha have has there been experiences you've had in the field and then you were you know back in the snake room and trying to figure something out and, and you basically thought well you know the alternative x y and z or whatever maybe i should try this and it helped well yeah with with all these things being nocturnal and living in tight places i think uh i think they live in these tight dark places not only to hide from predators but let's say you take a wash rag and you get it soaking wet and you lay it out flat and you get another wash rag and you wad it up, which one's going to dry out faster, right? The one that you laid out flat. So mm -hmm. these things are not only protecting themselves from predators in these dark cracks, they're also protecting themselves from hydrate, dehydration, losing losing moisture and stuff. So uh, I try. Uh, I mean, a lot of people complain about sizes of tubs, but I told you earlier the size I use is like a 28 to 32 quart, and these snakes don't get big that I keep. I mean, they're all around three-foot snakes. So I, mm -hmm. my, rule, my rule is diagonally across the tub. If they can fully stretch out, then it's big enough. Uh, mm -hmm. Some of them are half the perimeter 
mm-hmm. of, of the tub is big enough. And uh, I'm probably 99% good on my own rule. Some of them are a little mm-hmm. bad, but it happens. Uh, even the Applegate enclosure, uh, they're not huge, right? But they have so much, so much uh, climbing up and down, corner to corner, climbing all the way to the top of the tub. I mean, they uh, they get plenty of. I don't know if you want to call it enrichment. I don't want to use it, but there's plenty of exercise and uh, them hunting meals. I mean, I don't always put them in the same place, right? A lot of the times, they see me coming. And they're above ground. They just haul ass underground, either to run from me, or that's usually where I put the meal. <laughs> they, they know that there's a meal coming. So, yeah. Um, yeah, I remember like 15 years ago. Places seem to, sorry, dark tight. Oh places, no, no, dark tight places is is what mine like in the wild and in captivity. Yeah, no, going off of your enclosure size i remember like 15 years ago having some lemke line ruth and i and oh, okay. i no i don't have many more those were a pain <laughs> i have a f2 and f3 still oh man um but i remember if you put them in too big of an enclosure those things just stopped feeding yeah um well babies are like that too i see a lot of information online bigger the better i said well not when they're little Right, unless you, uh, you know, clutter it up enough where there's 30 different hides in a big, you know what I mean? Then maybe, then you got to find yeah. it to feed it because it's not coming out. Uh, Lemke line. I had a Lloyd Lemke. Can I tell a little story? Go <laughs> yeah. for it. Lloyd yeah. Lemke found an Almialco Ruthveni in 1983, the year before the Lacey Act. Uh, it was a male, guessed to be around three years old. Found some females from the same area. Started breeding them and it started producing aberrant uh, mm-hmm. Ruth Van I, which led to the stripes and the super stripes, which we all tried to make back in the day. There's one person that kind of perfected it finally, Ed Lanning. But anyway, this snake lived a very, very long time. I got it when it was 27 years old in right. 2010, I think it was, and it bred for me. I sent it back to the late Shannon Brown in 2013 at the age of 33. So it was 30 years old. I think it bred for me in 2008. That's why I have my dates off a little bit. But it was 27 when it bred for me, and I gave it back to Shannon at the age of 33. That's how I still have the F2s and F3s. <laughs> oh, wow. Wow. So was that particular animal, the, so that was the animal that was taken mm-hmm. the, from the wild? So patched in probably 1980, and at 2013 I gave it back, and I think it passed away shortly after that. That's crazy. So this thing had dimples. Every every scale had a dimple. I had to help it shed. Had cataracts in both eyes. Loved to eat and loved to breed. Still. No, that's yeah, it's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, you know, it, it's so wild when you, you talk to experienced keepers in terms of the age of some of the animals that they still have in their collections. Um, you know, where I think sometimes where we talk about newer keepers. They don't understand. Go live 20 plus years. No problem. Yeah. You know, some keepers think 10 years is extremely long for keeping some of these animals and they just don't understand the age. I don't think a female Montane King, I'm talking about still, 
I don't think a female peaks until age nine. So when they're age three or four, sometimes five if they're slow, start breeding, they start laying small clutches. And then the next couple of years, those clutch sizes increase. And then about age nine, that's their max clutch. You get 12, 13, 14 eggs from a Leonis, right? Mm-hmm. And then after that, it starts going downhill. But then it kind of plateaus. It gets down to where they lay about four or five eggs, and that's it. Even into their 20s until the day they die. They kind of hit their peak, and they drop a little bit and plateau. A lot of people think a nine-year-old is an old, worn-out breeder. We need to get rid of it, right? Yeah. <laughs> Good golly. Yeah, no, that it's, it's very interesting in terms of some of the things that I think even in publications, not only in – hobby um, aspects in terms of literature that we read, but also in scientific literature, we don't fully capture in terms of a lot of that captive reproduction. Um, You know, even, you know, Zach working on his books here too. I mean, a lot of the captive or even natural biology of reproductive biology comes from the hobby. Um, Mm -hmm. And a lot of it, I think is very beneficial when we get people like yourself, John, that not only have the field herping side, but also the captive side where you kind of bring things full circle to kind of be hobby standard. Well, no, perfecting the hobby, if you will, in terms of keeping style. Yeah. Uh, the main thing I've learned is males are good until the day they die, right? Kind of like humans. <laughs> 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 wow. Nice. So is there a member of this complex that I guess it's a, this is a double question within this group of snakes. Is there one that's your like favorite and is there one that's more like your nemesis or are they all kind of the same or, you know, like what what are your thoughts on that? Just since you're kind of the guy and you've, it's it's a two or three part. I mean, answer also Uh, my favorite because I can go find them is Alterna. Gotcha. Uh, if I could just drive down to Valle de los Fantasmas and find Mexmex, they would be up there with them too, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, my favorite, due to variability, and but I can't go catch any, is Leonis. Gotcha. Uh, my nemesis is probably everyone's nemesis is Zanata. I have never produced a Zanata in my life, and I'm only I haven't tried because. I didn't, haven't kept them a lot. Uh, I tried maybe five years ago with a trio I had. Didn't get anything. That was the last time I tried. So Zanata are probably my nemesis. Mm-hmm. Uh, I still produce all the others. Uh, Ruth Van I, not a lot of people working with them anymore. So they're kind of up there. It's one of my favorites. Uh, they were the first out of the complex. Nope, they were the second out of the complex to be giving species status. Uh, Gartska did back in the day. Mm-hmm. Uh, those same Garska animals, Terry Hearing got some of them and produced the first albino tricolor ever, ever in 1990, oh, 87, 1987. Uh, one that no one has and only a handful of people on earth have ever seen is Nipropiltus mm-hmm. webi. Uh, y'all know Rob Bryson, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. He, he got that named as a species back in. 2011 or 2010, something like that. Uh, there's only been two live ones found since that clipped one, almost DOR, was found. Uh, that's it. 
It's a bad part of Mexico, though. <laughs> yeah, you gotta be careful. <laughs> there hasn't been much found since then. Mm-hmm. It could have been like the olden days, like everyone went down to Rancho Santa Barbara and got Greer Eye <laughs> for like 20 years solid. <laughs> everyone mm-hmm. just went to Rancho Santa Barbara and got Greer Eye. So 99.9% of our Greer Eye in captivity, our locality, they're all Rancho Santa Barbara. No one hardly says that. I mean, there are a few traceable back to there, but most of them have lost that lineage, but we know what they are. They're all Rancho Santa Barbara. F20. Interesting. <laughs> F20. <laughs> you know, that's kind of another interesting segue, I think, is, John, what, do you, what are your thoughts on locality-specific animals as they relate to the hobby? I mean, you brought up Alterna. Locality reigns king is all I'm going to say, <laughs> but I'll say more. Uh, as long as biologists and scientists and her, her, uh, her, herpetologists change names, change species, change subspecies, lump, split, I can still say this is where they're from, right? Mm-hmm. So I think locality is key. I mean, last year it was, I mean, five years ago it was a Texas rat. Now it's a Western rat, right? I can still say, well, it's from this area regardless. Uh, a lot of people do it thinking that they're producing exactly what could happen in the wild. And that ain't the reason I'm doing it. Uh, I still, the whole morph mining, I love breeding F1s together to see what hidden traits mm-hmm. are. Right? Uh, I think we're not producing what could be found in the wild. Even if we find something 10 feet from a, find a female 10 feet from a male on two different nights, right? Because unless you throw a female in with five males, and see what happens then then you might be getting closer to what the wild can produce as multiple males can yeah yeah fertilize eggs uh the funnest part is pairing up a locality right it took me two years to find my first alterna then i take my buddy chris Painshaw out there yeah <laughs> he fumbles and turns on his light and there's one right in his beam <laughs> right so it's fun pairing up things because you, you just hit an area and keep hitting it until you find one and it's like i said way better than watching eggs hatch and feeding those thing things <laughs> yeah. but yeah I, I mean i have a lot of locality splendida locality pyros locality alterna somewhat locality leonas many locality uh annulata and uh uh, those are, I mean, I used to have a hundred or more California Kings and only a few locality. I'm down to just, just the locality ones. Uh, kind of gotten away from new, mutants <laughs> and, and started. I mean, that's my passion is Walcott, F1s, F2s. That's about it. But, Very cool. But we're stuck on, like I said, with, with Ruth Vinay and Leonis and Mixmex. We're stuck with whatever we got, so we're just line breeding now for those. And I'm getting some crazy looks out of some mex mechs that haven't been seen before. And these neon, neon, uh, neon orange Leonis, those aren't found in the wild, but they still look cool, right? Mm-hmm. Do you think you have enough genetic diversity with the mex mechs? Yeah, I wanted to get that into you with y'all. I forgot to even write that down, but uh, I think Elevation Kings breed each other in a while mm-hmm. they're isolated to a population so uh the i bred 
successive generations, four generations in a row, and still haven't seen any trouble at all with needing new bloodlines. The reason we need new bloodlines is just to have a different look, or you know, what I mean, you get, get kind of type. the same thing, yeah. But yeah, um, lowland creatures like uh, creatures, lowland snakes, grassland snakes like uh, Splendida and Milks. Uh, I really haven't bred multiple generations to even know, but those are the ones that I would want to reintroduce and have a diverse genetic field to play instead of just line breeding now. Can we talk about Splendida a little bit? Sure. Cool with that, because I do know those guys, and I happen to have more than a couple at my house right now. Uh, have you? Have, so I'm taking it with the locality thing, and you've collected them, or, or yes, sir. Yeah. So and have some others have collected, and some from lines others have collected. What? what is there a magic? This is the naturalist in me talking now. Is there? Are there like conditions where you're out herping? And you're like, oh, this is going to be a Splendida night, kind of, kind of thing. Or is there just there are population levels at a point where you can pretty much bumble onto them any night? It depends on where you're looking. Uh, South Texas, you very, very slim chance you will road cruise one. You would have to go flip them. Ninety uh, mm percent -hmm. I found were flipped. Very few road cruises in South Texas. West Texas, you can find eight a night on the right condition. <laughs> Right. Mm -hmm. um, they like it a little cooler. They like nice to get into the low 70s. Uh, West Texas, I mean, South Texas doesn't get into the low 70s in the summer. Our lows like 82. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, so West Texas is uh, the easiest place to find them. And if you hit the grasslands at night, around 74 degrees seems to be like the magic number. Uh, Mexican milks is around 78 degrees in South Texas, right? Mm -hmm. But we have these ranges. Like most Mexican milks are found from, some people say the 60s. I found 50 in my life or so, and none have been in the 60s. Uh, 74 to 81 has been that range. Uh, Mexican milks, like I said, in two different parts of the state, and even in the Arizona, it's usually low 70s. Interesting. Humidity is a thing too. So uh, there's a south, like hunting West Texas is all about where did it rain last? Or where is the southeast wind blowing from? So blowing that moisture off the Gulf into West Texas helps. That's and then there's, then there's barometric pressure. When that southeast wind's blowing, you usually have a low going on counterclockwise, right? Mm -hmm. uh, when that high pressure's going, you don't have any wind, and you got high pressure there, there's not much movement. So I got so, a buddy just last week found three Alterna in two nights. So he goes back again this weekend, zero because of high pressure. You know, that's like one of the most interesting parts I find with locality specific animals is just what you're mentioning is just like their natural realm, barometric pressure, seeing how animals are actually found, how they're actually using their environment. Um, and the time of the year. So yeah, we, for Alterna, since we were talking about Alterna, mm -hmm. oh, we were talking about Splendida. Sorry, I got back to. No, that's fine. <laughs> Uh, we hunt the eastern range first at the beginning. May, June, July, it starts getting too hot. So up in the mountains at elevation, July, August, September is where we go. September, when it starts cooling off, then we try to hit everywhere again before the end of the season. 
Then October, October, we come look for milk snakes again in South Texas. <laughs> and then we ain't got nothing again until May. I was just about to ask, is there anything moving in the winter or winter, I mean, winter? Indigos. I mean, we, we can find oh. indigos in the winter. They, they breed kind of late, late in the year, November, have you, December. Have you found those, the Texas indigos? Yeah. All oh, my God, man. I mean, how can you just nonchalantly be like, oh, well, you know, there's indigos in the winter? <laughs> <laughs> I see a lot of VORs, but I see a uh-huh. here. Wow. That's pretty if cool. If I targeted them, I could find more here, but I don't mm-hmm. even target them because they've been on the blacklist so long. Yeah. Still, they were endangered, protected. They got taken off the endangered, protected list, but they're still on what we call our Texas blacklist where we can't commercially yeah. collect them, but we can collect them. But if you have a non game dealer's permit, you can't collect them, anything on the blacklist. Mm-hmm. And if we want to keep anything native, we're supposed to have a non-game dealer's permit. So it's weird rules that we've been fighting for 20 years. But Holy Moses. That's pretty awesome. Sorry I'm a little gobsmacked right now that you just have dry well, Martin. Come on down. We'll find some. Uh, you did it. You invited me. <laughs> I'm like a tick. <laughs> I'm going to come. <laughs> All right. Dang. Okay. Um, so I guess final couple questions here what what do you think the future of the hobby is the, the hobby right now is just in this weird spot where there's facets of it that are great and then there's facets of it that are disgusting and then there's other facets we're not going to talk about and then there's facets where there's hope like it's all over the place it just kind of depends on what you're talking about so you have well, a really cool perspective because you've been doing well, this for a while it's cyclic for sure mm-hmm. uh I know more about the niche market I'm in, which is king snakes, mainly the Mexican king snakes. Uh, I know a lot about the Getula market, except for the Eastern stuff that I don't mess with a lot, like Getula, Getula, and mm-hmm. Brook's Eye, Floridana, stuff like that. But I uh, uh, don't want to reiterate, but like I said, I when I came in in the early 90s, it was a colubrid market. There were very few people with Burmese balls and uh, retics and, and Colombian boas and stuff like that. Uh, well, and I, before the internet, I only knew people in South Texas too. So it was all, let's go find all these snakes that we have here. Uh, then I saw the Honduran milk craze, which kind of boosted colubrids uh, in the early 2000s. Mm-hmm. And then I saw ball pythons, crested geckos, leopard geckos, cargo geckos take over every show I ever went to for probably 15, 20 years. And like we were talking about earlier, just this year, last year, we started seeing more people on with uh, clubras on their tables. Right. So uh, mm-hmm. hognose was a part of that. Everyone liked hognose. Yeah. They're clubroids, I know, or they're not really mm. clubrids. Uh, Mexican black kings. That's interesting to me. Yeah, that's very interesting. What were your thoughts on that? Uh, Crazy. To us, to us, it was the poor man's uh, indigo, or mm-hmm. right. Uh, we were getting them for thirty bucks a piece before, mm-hmm. just four years ago, and then everyone wanted two hundred dollars for them, uh, which is good because. I look at my snake saying, well, that's worth more than MBK. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
right? Mm-hmm. So uh, I, I just thought that was interesting. Uh, I see everyone freaking out when they see an MBK with pattern. And I said, well, that's all we had back in the day. We hatch MBKs out, and they all look like Splendida, and they just got dark with age. Uh, mm-hmm. Line breeding in captivity has made everyone think that they should be solid black right out of the egg. So they scream hybrid. Uh, uh, I see uh, colubrids continuing uh, until the next big thing pops up. I mean, I don't think we should plateau. I think it should be continuing to be popular from here on out, depending on laws and these cobra keepers letting them out and stuff like that. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yes, we do. <laughs> Go ahead. My big question to you is, if you could add any species to your collection now, what would it be? Webby. You add it. Webby. That was like, bam, Webby. Done. Mm -hmm. All right. Makes no sense. I just need to catch about five or six, bring them back. Uh, There's been people trying to get things, herpetologists, scientists, biologists, trying to get animals back from Mexico for years, and they still haven't figured it out. The only person I know that's truly figured out something is uh, Jason Wagner, Project Abronia, about 10, 15 years ago. I used to keep Abronia, by the way. Hmm. Heart, worst bit I ever got was by Abronia because <laughs> they try to make their teeth touch after they bite you. Oh. Uh, Jason Wagner went down there and convinced governments, local governments, uh, local state governments, that they were... Uh, need to be protected, right? So he set up a program with collecting all of these, setting up a breeding program in Mexico and releasing half into the wild and bringing bringing half back to the States. Now I know personal breeders in Mexico that can only sell in Mexico, they can't get anything out. And I've tried to get animals legally and I can't figure it out. Like I said, Robert Hansen can't figure it out. Robert Hansen been going over there for 30, 40 years. <laughs> And working with uh, Lascano, who is the uh, herpetologist of the Nuevo Leon University there. And they can't figure out any legal way to do it. So, WebEye is always on the top of the list because no one has them. And, hell, they look cool. They look like they look like what a Noblakai and a Greerai would look like. And they're right oh, in between the ranges, cool. too, right? Mm-hmm. That's uh, nuts. Taxonomy? Uh, uh, I said noble kai. Now you can find noble kai in Arizona, even though they look like pyros. So I think that needs some work. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Our good friend Taxonomy comes up in every episode. <laughs> yeah, and that's why locality's king. I don't care what mm-hmm. y'all call it. This is where I found them, or this is where they're from, right? No, that's a very, very, I've never heard it, it pointed out that way, but that's a very valid point. Yeah. And if you keep those look, if you honor the locality and you don't mix this locality with that locality, then when a new name pops up, you're not going to be dealing with hybrids that weren't hybrids five years ago. Yeah, so that's what uh, I I don't like about the lumping. I've got to a point, and it's on my own accord, and some others do it too, where every subspecies that there used to be, I just drop the trinomial name, and I just use a binomial name, saying everything's its own species now. When I sell them or tell people what I work with, because I don't want them breeding a Lampropeltis Mexicana Rufini to a Lampropeltis Mexicana Mexmax just because they're interspecies hybrid. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know what I mean? So I, 
I do that with all the Getula now. I still say in Alice. I still say wouldn't I? I still say <laughs> everything. The the general trend in science right now is that if you have a a phenotype that is really distinct, it's got a geographic barrier that's kind of well known and understood. Whenever people do these revisions, it seems like the the subspecies status is dropped and then you elevate the species. So that's a totally valid thing. And I'm it's not like what they about. I like what they did with MRI and Slovinsky yep. and and they they made them all subs, which I like that. At least they yep. read. They say resurrected Milmorum, which is a mm-hmm. six-foot heavy-bodied snake, not a little three-foot brown snake up north, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. And then I started thinking, you know, no one's perfected nuclear DNA yet, right? Mm-hmm. We're only using mitochondrial DNA, and it's only one side of the story, right? <laughs> I'm it's, not one, it's literally one. It's like the mom's side of the story. I'm not a biologist, so I don't want to get too deep yeah. into it. But uh, eventually they're going to say they're all snakes, right? Yeah. <laughs> they're all snakes mm-hmm. well i it, i'm from the old school where scale counts and phenotype played part in the into mm-hmm. speciation so why can't we bring some of that back well what people are trying to there's a there's an idea called the integrated species concept which and I, I don't really hear herpers talking about it but that's exactly what it is it's where you use all the evidence well, I like the last paper on Milmorum. It showed yeah. the integration yeah. with the different colors exactly. on the map. Yep. And if you think about that paper and what, what I just said with elevating, the MRI group, there's not really a solid geographic barrier. Like they all kind of merge, but you end up with a regional phenotype in response to the habitats they're in, which is literally the definition of a subspecies. So well, the Tama Leapin thorn scrub habitat does stop mm-hmm. pretty close to the line where Milmorum or well MRI starts. Yeah, exactly. And like Pituopus, Sei versus Affinis, mm-hmm. uh, the hill country and grasslands and thorn scrubs stop right around the Pecos River. Then it turns into the Chihuahuan Desert. So there's a, a few with some barriers. Uh, something interesting, I don't know if uh, everyone's read my article, but not everyone knows that, and this may not be in my article, but uh, Eastern Range Blairi which are Lampropeltis alterna Blair's phase. They mm-hmm. used to be a separate species at one time. Mexicana Blairii, Mexicana alterna. Uh, MTA, M- mitochondrial DNA shows milk snake genetics in them. Oh, that's cool. So check this out. That's the eastern part of the range where corals are, where milks annulata mainly are. Mm-hmm. Then you start finding uh, Salinops, like west of Sanderson area. Down in Mexico, the eastern range Lampropeltis leonis is milk snake phase. Huh. Right? The eastern range, uh, eastern and southern range of Mexmex are banded and look closer to Ruth than I. There's also been banded Greerai found, not just saddled Greerai. So all of these snakes are so similar in that there's a banded phase and a saddled phase. That's except, cool. Except for Ruth Vinai. They're all banded, uh, whereby we don't know enough about. So uh, the ones that when we were talking about Therari earlier, the ones that he found, that uh, Army general guy there, the ones that he found were banded. So that's why they were named separate. Ah, oh, gotcha. Huh. We're afraid Therari might be resurrected. 
And I said, if y'all do, y'all better resurrect Blair Eye too. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but because, I mean, then we got a bunch of hybrids in captivity. So things like that happen even in the U.S. When you start saying, oh, these are all Eastern rats. Well, I can breed a green to a to a yellow to a gray now, right? <laughs> That's why I say your locality is still king. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, it's a great great place to end it is locality is still king yeah so i don't know this has been wonderful john like hope so i learned a lot I, this is a group of snakes that i have been intimidated by for a long time and i think that this is going to serve as a great intro for people that might be interested and they just want to go to place to you can only learn so much from an article when you're talking to somebody that knows what they're talking about and they've been doing it forever that experience is king and i'm real happy we have this recorded Great. Uh, so thank you much man so on that token if anybody is fascinated by these animals they want to get a hold of you they're interested in in, in potentially purchasing your stock what's the best way for people to reach out and find you well two places uh facebook and instagram and it's both captain ben uh, Coastal Band Captive Breeding, no spaces, and you'll find me both on Facebook and Instagram. But this year is not a good year to contact me to purchase because there wasn't a lot hatched for a lot of reasons I won't get into, but next year will be the year again. So you're, you're jumping back into it, hardcore? Oh, well, I produced, like I said, 300 babies last year. This year I had to, I had to, uh, had to prolong my brumation because of work. The freeze screwed up a lot of things at work and made it go longer. My dad passed away. A lot of things happened. And I got everything out late, and uh, there was some syncing issues. Not everything was synced up. Some things didn't even ovulate. Uh, I managed to get like 40 eggs, but all right. Yeah, it's still good. <laughs> I'll be back. Uh-huh. There you go. Okay. So, um, yeah, this wraps up our episode with john i'm certain we're gonna have john back uh, i'd love to do a field herping episode i'd love to do an establishing wild caught and captivity episode there's plenty to be talking about and in american circles john's really well known am i his work yeah you're pretty well known i've been told that <laughs> i've been told i'm shy don't talk to anyone and kind of a wrestling <laughs> nah i knew about you before before this and i knew you were the mex mex guy so yeah. there you go but uh yeah so this is our what episode number are we on here four is that right number four yep so if you want to get a hold of me uh i'm just zach loafman on facebook um dr crawdad on instagram um or zach loafman you can search both uh that's me where can they find you matt uh sarpamitra and sarpamitra usa on instagram Okay, and then, as always, we're proud members of the NPR Network. Uh, there's a ton of podcasts, and every episode I say that I'm going to list them all, and once again, I forgot to print them all out. So, anywho, I was listening to the Monitor podcast, though, yesterday while I was cleaning cages, and they made a suggestion of maybe just making a standardized ending for all of the podcasts where they're all listed, and I... Clubrid and Clubroid Radio are on, on, you know, we're fans of that idea. That'd be kind of nice. So, anyway, with that being said, this was a fantastic episode. Hope you liked it. As always, if you want to give us ideas for future episodes and guests, please hit us up. And with that, 
have a great one. Later.